Good evening, I'm John Berman, and this is CNN Tonight. And frankly, what a night. Based on some predictions, a nearly impossible night. For those who believe in freedom, an almost miraculous night. And it gives me good reason to share with you our first, first joint victory. We defeated Russia in the battle for minds of the world. We have no fear, nor should anyone in the world have it. Ukraine's gained this victory, and it gives us courage, which inspires the entire world. Standing before the U.S. Congress, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, there not as some deposed or defeated figure, but as the leader of an independent and democratic Ukraine, a Ukraine that 10 months ago many thought would not exist, a Ukraine that Vladimir Putin clearly thought would crumble. A Ukraine whose capital, Kiev, Western intelligence thought might fall within a week. It didn't. This was President Zelensky's very first night outside Ukraine since the Russian invasion, but his 300th night of defiance. Against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios, Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. This was history with a capital H, or a capital U, as the case might be. Or actually, if you'll forgive me, a capital F-U to Russia from Zelensky. This was, after all, the leader of those troops on Snake Island who declared to a Russian warship, go blank yourself. This was the leader himself who told those who offered to help him flee last February, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. We'll celebrate Christmas. Celebrate Christmas, and even if there is no electricity, the light of our faith in ourselves will not be put out. If Russian, if Russian missiles attack us, we'll do our best to protect ourselves. If they attack us with Iranian drones, and our people will have to go to bomb shelters on Christmas Eve, Ukrainians will still sit down at the holiday table, and cheer up each other. Politicians and the press often toss around comparisons to Winston Churchill, but this time, minus the cigar and the whiskey, it fits. Churchill came to the United States and spoke to Congress after the worst of the London Blitz in just two weeks after Pearl Harbor. He actually helped light the national Christmas tree. Today, President Biden noted that Zelensky, who is Jewish, was here during Hanukkah, itself a celebration of perseverance making one night's worth of oil last eight. Tonight is the fourth night of, night of Hanukkah, a time when Jewish people around the world, President Zelensky and many of the families among them, honor the timeless miracle of a small band of warriors fighting for their values and their freedom against a much larger foe and how they endured and how they overcame. One difference between the visit of Churchill and Zelensky, the U.S. is not nearly as unified in support for the war effort. Yes, there was warmth and applause inside the House chamber, but Donald Trump Jr. declared today, quote, Zelensky is basically an ungrateful international welfare queen. As you let that sink in, remember what the people of Ukraine have been through.
Homes bombed, buildings destroyed, schools, playgrounds, trains. And for what? For existing, for daring to be there at all, next to Russia, separate from Russia. Thousands of Ukrainians killed. Instead of trying to grasp the enormity of those numbers, thousands, let's talk about one. I met Andre last March in the hospital after his foot was shattered by a Russian mine. And I just remember, like, I woke up in road. I see the broken car, and I see, like, my mother going in fire. Uh, my mother was, she was alive when it burned. My mother was still alive when, while she was on fire. Last killed his mother. What do you want the world to know about your mother? Sorry. I'm sorry. Excuse me. I want them to know that my mother was a very beautiful woman. And that's just one story. One, there are mass graves. There are the cities without power, the towns without water. That is what President Zelensky was here for tonight, standing before Congress, before the world, standing for freedom, for Ukraine, for Andre. Let's turn to Phil Mattingly, CNN's chief White House correspondent, and Jim Shudo, CNN anchor and chief national security correspondent. Gentlemen, great to see you. I have to say, this felt like a moment. This felt like a speech people will be talking about for generations. Jim, to you, who do you think that Zelensky was speaking to tonight? You know, John, I'm so glad you you told the story you you did just there of of your experience in Ukraine and just one victim of many tens of thousands because there has been willful ignorance in this country about the war in Ukraine and it still continues tonight. We've heard it even in the wake of the speech from some quarters, not just Donald Trump Jr., who through some choice don't want to see what has happened there, you know, at the hands of Russia. Uh, You had a leader, a Ukrainian leader there coming and, and deliberately in his first words direct his comments to the American people at home and, and not the politicians or anybody else, just folks at home to say, this is not just our war, it's your war. Uh, th- this is a war for our country's freedom, but also for the free world. And, and he reserved for the Russians behind this war some quite strong language at times, including calling them terrorists. Uh, have a listen to one, one of those moments. It is in your power really, to help us bring to justice everyone who started this unprovoked and criminal war. Let's do it. Let terrorists... Let the terrorist state be held responsible for its terror and aggression and compensate all losses done by this war. 
He was speaking facts there, right? Russia invaded. Since the invasion, Russia has not just tried to burn down the country. I mean, it's committed, you know, alleged war crimes, rapes, murders of civilians, etc. And saying, don't give up, in effect, uh, to the American people or to the politicians in that room. Don't give up because we still need your help. So clearly speaking to the American people, speaking to members of Congress with that bite you just played, Jim, speaking, I also think to Vladimir Putin, Phil Mattingly at the White House. How does this message that Zelensky delivered today, how does it square with the current White House message? How aligned are they? Yeah, I think broadly when it comes to the messaging, they're very aligned. And I think White House officials going into this day, throughout the course of this day, and certainly uh, at the end of the uh, President Zelensky's remarks, uh, we're willing to acknowledge that this was a critical moment for these messages to be delivered, a moment where there is no sense that there is an end game here for a war that continues to grind on. It's gotten more grueling day by day. And I think when you look at the dynamics of the battlefield right now and you talk to U.S. officials about that, they look at the escalations we've seen over the last couple of weeks targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure. They look at uh, the number of troops that Russia is calling up in this moment, despite their battlefield defeats over the course of the last several months. And they recognize that this is going to be a major and significant battle for months, if not longer. And that is why this moment, this moment that President Zelensky kind of shocked everyone showing up here in this first trip was so critical. Yes, there are very clear differences in terms of what types of assistance the U.S. believes they should provide versus what President Zelensky wants and has requested. There are clear differences about the diplomatic uh, pathways that could lead to the end of the war. But overall, I think the dynamics that you, when you talk to White House officials is recognizing that what they need more than anything else is a durability of the coalition that has been rock solid up to this point from the Western Alliance, but also the durability for the American people and their willingness to continue to serve as the number one ally of Ukraine, both in money and military assistance and economic assistance, but also, as President Biden made clear, for as long as it takes, John. And Phil, just on this point quickly, does the White House believe that this speech tonight, this visit, helped that cause? I think unequivocally, when you talk to White House officials, they they believe it does. They believe it was essential. And they also understand the shifting political dynamics. They believe that Republicans will, in large part, stay with Democrats in supporting this cause, in supporting mm-hmm. Ukraine and President Zelensky. But they know things are shifting, certainly with the House Republicans about to take the majority. And they want to make sure they do everything in their power to maintain that going into mm-hmm. that new dynamic in Washington. And Jim, can we talk about the major deliverable, or at least the one that's being billed as the major deliverable here, which is this single Patriot missile battery. Practically speaking, what might that do? And I will note that, that, you know, Zelensky flat out said he'd like more of them. Listen, it's it's an umbrella in a rainstorm, right? A rainstorm of Russian missiles and Iranian drones that that are punishing the Ukrainian people every day. And, And is the reason that, as Zelensky said in, in the chamber, that uh, they'll be celebrating Christmas, but perhaps by candlelight, right? Because so many people have lost power, and that's deliberate. It's one system. It's going to take uh, weeks to train the folks necessary to operate it. And frankly, Ukraine's been asking for more and more air defense since the very beginning of this war. They're getting more, not at the pace that they want. And that's why I think you heard Zelensky you know, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, say, it's nice to have this, but we need more. But, man, you know, he's behind that is the suffering of, of the Ukrainian people. So, you know, it's a step, but it's not all they need, and it's not clear 
how quickly they will get the air defense necessary to, to stop some, you know, stop some of the suffering. I mean, listen, they shoot, they shoot a lot of these down, but Russia's firing so many at them that they can't shoot them all down. Jim Shudo, Phil Mattingly, so great to have you both on Thank tonight. You. Thanks so much. Thank you. I want to bring in Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. She was in that chamber during President Zelensky's historic speech. Senator Klobuchar, uh, if you can be our reporter for us on the ground there, just what was it like to be in the room? Well, thanks, John, and thanks for uh, the last reporting. Uh, it was right on. Uh, President Zelensky has always showed courage. He showed courage when he walked down into the streets of Ukraine when everyone had counted him out and said those simple three words, we are here and changed the trajectory. Everyone accounted him out and the people of Ukraine out. He did it again tonight. First of all, it was at a moment where Democrats and Republicans are hashing out this end of year spending bill and tempers are high. People were united, leaders of both parties there, multiple, multiple times of standing ovations and applause, and almost this joyous, while somber, but joyous support for this man that they respect so much. And the way he was able to conjure those images that Jim and Phil just mentioned of the candlelight and Ukrainians, I saw more than a few members, tears coming down their cheeks as they heard those stories and thought of the people of Ukraine in the cold, still hanging in there, refusing to give up on democracy. And then his rhetoric, I don't know if you could say it was soaring, right? But what it was, was to the point. And he said, this is about the kind of world our children are going to grow up in, as in Ukrainian kids, but also your children, making the case that this is a worldwide cause to stand up for democracy, which is, of course, one of the reasons you're seeing this broad support. People love him. They love the people of Ukraine. But they also know we cannot fold to Vladimir Putin and to Russia. And that's why you're seeing the president standing up with his plans. And that is why you're seeing the money uh, coming here, what I hope we will get done, I am sure we will get done uh, by the end of the year for military and refugees and assistance. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that money, because President Zelensky, who not for nothing, delivered this entire speech in English, which he speaks well, but to do that in front of the Congress and the American people, that takes a certain type of courage also. But he talked about the money that the American people and the American Congress is providing. He pointed out it's not charity. Listen. Your money is not Charity is an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. <laughs> Russia, Russia could stop its aggression, really if it wanted to, but you can speed up our victory. I know it. Who do you think that message was directed to? Why is it necessary? Well, first of all, I love that part when he talked about the investment, the first part about investment um, in democracy. I think I might have been the first one to stand up in my area. I just thought that was a really important point to make. First of all, Ukraine's going to come back. They are an incredibly innovative group, and there's already people thinking about their economy moving forward. So it is an investment in their country, but it's also an investment 
uh, in the world's democracy. So I thought that was well said because you don't want to start thinking like, oh, this is just a, a sad sack situation. It's not. They've beaten all the odds. They've beaten back Russia. They've gotten regained their territory. Uh, so I think that was a really important point to make. You know that the Republicans will be in control of the House of Representatives in a matter of few weeks. How do you think that might change the dynamic in terms of what has been pretty broad congressional support for aid to Ukraine? I am hopeful that that is not going to change. Um, I saw, for one thing, I know in the Senate, strong support, even with Senator Portman leaving. He and I uh, traveled in August in the middle of the night to meet with President Zelensky and Defense Minister Reznikov. Uh, and uh, many other members stepping in, but you're going to have uh, strong support still in the Senate. Uh, there have been a few, as you know, in the House um, on some of the statements that were made, but um, uh, Kevin McCarthy actually did, I remember this before the election, uh, actually draw back some of his statements after he made them uh, about Ukraine. So I'm hoping that this strong support continues. There are so many Ukrainian Americans um, in the U.S., that's important. People are listening to them. But I think people get this democracy argument. You cannot, no matter what your political beliefs are, and you're always going to have people on the extremes who may not want to help. But when you look at what this is about, you cannot let the barbaric, inhuman Vladimir Putin be able to dominate the world stage and just walk into any democracy he wants and take it over. That is an American interest. It's not just Democratic or Republican. Senator Amy Klobuchar, thank you so much for being with us. Hope you have a wonderful Christmas thank back you. in Minnesota. You know, as close oh, to the well, North Pole as you can get, right? If we can get through the blizzards and these votes, yes, I hope I do. But right. thank you very much. Guys. Thank you so much, Senator. Much more ahead tonight on President Zelensky's historic address to Congress, plus 34 new transcripts just released tonight by the January 6th committee. New details about what witnesses said about the attack on the Capitol. This is ahead of the report full release coming tomorrow. Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, walking into the House chamber wearing his now famous green fatigues. He might be the first person ever to address a joint meeting of Congress in a green sweatshirt. Uh, he spoke near perfect English, reading from the notes in front of him as he addressed the crowd. He got a kiss from the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. This was a remarkable moment. We've never seen anything quite like this before, but it does harken back to some of the more inspiring moments, inspiring leaders from foreign visits in our past. Uh, joining me now to discuss is Tim Naftali, CNN presidential historian, former director of the Nixon Presidential Library. Also with us, Margaret Hoover and CNN senior political analyst, John Avalon. Tim, I, I dropped the Winston Churchill bomb uh, earlier, and, and that is the comparison. Here. Mm -hmm. Churchill did come here mm -hmm. uh, after Pearl Harbor, stayed at the White House with Franklin Roosevelt, spoke to Congress. Yes, and, and this historical analogy is just right. And it's just right because at this moment, Vladimir Zelensky is the symbol of resistance and the symbol of liberty mm -hmm. in the world. 
And in 1941, mm. Winston Churchill was the symbol of resistance and the symbol of liberty. In 1941, Churchill's country faced long odds. In 2022, Zelensky's Ukraine faces long odds. And in both times, at both times, the arsenal of democracy was America. We weren't doing the fighting, but if we didn't give the supplies, our ally would fail. And so the analogy is perfect. And that's why tonight was one of those historic moments that will be talked about forever. Here's where... I'm not so sure it's a perfect analogy. <laughs> Tim Naftali, you're the historian, but as you know, in 1941, the United States had just been bombed in Pearl Harbor. Churchill was coming here because he had been begging the United States to join this war for years. And, you know, as Churchill always said, Americans eventually get it right after they've exhausted every other option. <laughs> okay? This is the case now where 300 days into the war, Americans, we know democracy gets tired of war. When it's our own, let alone when it's other people's wars. And so I think it's really poignant and not exactly precise to say it's an exact analogy because he was coming here to rabble our troops, to, 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 to make the case that we cannot get tired of fighting for our values on their front. So you're almost saying that Zelensky's had a harder job than Churchill had. That's yes. exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes. Look, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I love history giving perspective on the present moment. But this was one of those moments that will endure, in part because Zelensky's also, you know, he's living on the front lines, not just an air war, but a ground war. And and it is about symbols of freedom and liberty and the free world standing up to tyranny. And it was great to see the bipartisan applause in this joint session of Congress. We don't remember the America firsters of that first generation when Churchill spoke. Because after Pearl Harbor was bombed, many of them shifted their tune. And, and I think Amy Klobuchar, who was just on a, a second ago with you, was right, saying that the extremes, you know, we, we shouldn't let them crowd out the broad bipartisan support there is for Ukraine in standing up to Vladimir Putin. But it is still striking that there is, uh, a, there are extremists who still are willing to denigrate Zelensky in a moment like this. But, and and he, I, he came here, uh, rebut me, because what I was going to say is, he came here <laughs> to say, don't lose <laughs> energy, don't lose focus. Because you're, historian. you're no, the historian. You're the historian. That doesn't mean I know everything. No, no, no. Winston Churchill would have disagreed with you. I, I, because when he came here, what his, fear, what his fear was, yeah. was because Japan had attacked the United States. Yes. The United States would not send munitions to Europe. So he was actually very worried. Yes, the United States was in a war. I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to push back nerdishly on you on two fronts. First of all, Germany declared war on the United States after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So we were already engaged in that fight, miscalculation. Was it over when the Germans bombed yeah, Pearl Harbor? And, and, and as Senator Blutowski would point out, it was not, in fact, over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor. The, the, the second point, of course, is as a historian, you can't get in Winston Churchill's head. That's impossible. No, right, but let's but, bring this back I to Zelensky. I know what Churchill wrote like- to the king and what he explained why he was going to the United States. He was very afraid that the United States would not supply yeah. support, which is what Zelensky was trying yes. to do today. Zelensky and is afraid that's right. that's that right. it's going to stop. All. That's right. That's exactly. And it's all about the politics of the moment. I mean, they are coming here to the United States based on the contemporary politics in that moment in 1941 and the, and the politics right now. Okay, so sales pitch. Did he sell? Yes. I, I, yes. And, 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 you know, I think, so. I, think, I think it was very clear. I mean, you, you could tell by the room 
the bipart- overwhelming bipartisan support. It dramatizes the moment. But I think when we take a step back, we'll see that 2022 has been a tipping point in the 21st century. Um, and the way that the Western world, led by the United States, has rallied around Ukraine, who pushed back mm. you know, Vladimir Putin. And this this was an important point he made, too. This is not Russia's war. It's Putin's war. Here's, here's That's we, a critical point. Here's how we know he sold. I mean, look, he was coming to a welcoming Congress. Mm-hmm. The Congress has actually given Ukraine $8 billion more dollars in the Omni than the mm. White House even asked for. Mm-hmm. They're buttressing against a GOP Stats house that fact. might actually try to withdraw support. Tim, Morgan you know, brought up a point that sometimes Americans get tired of war, and those are wars that Americans are actually fighting in. Mm-hmm. What does history tell us about how long America's heart will stay in this? Because Zelensky was clearly asking for a lot longer. When Americans lose a sense of why they're fighting, then morale disappears. Mm-hmm. When Americans couldn't understand why they were fighting in Korea, morale collapsed. When Americans couldn't understand why they were fighting in Vietnam, morale collapsed. Americans never lost an un- a sense of why they were fighting evil in World War II. Morale was always high in both wars. I suspect that as long as people in this country can tell the difference between good and evil and understand that Zelensky represents good and that we are actually fighting a we're in the era of dictators once again, mm-hmm. and that the front line for all of us is the Donbass. If Americans accept that, I don't think morale will collapse, and I don't think it'll collapse in Europe either. And that's what Zelensky was pitching tonight yes. to Congress and to the American people and to Vladimir Putin, who he spoke to somewhat directly there, yes. as Jim Shiro noted. Guys, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. So he was hoping to go on tour across Europe with his punk rock band shortly after the war in Ukraine broke out. That's when I first met Andrei Zolob. Since then, he's been touring as a military doctor in his own country. How his story reflects the reality on the ground in the country that Vladimir Putin is trying to destroy and Volodymyr Zelensky is asking the world to save, that's next. The audience for President Zelensky's speech tonight was certainly American lawmakers, the American people, the international community. But in the middle of it all, the Ukrainian people, so many of whose lives have been completely upended by the war. I wanted to tell you the story of one Ukrainian, a punk rocker I met last winter, what he is now fighting for and how his life has been changed. first met Andrei Zolob and his Ukrainian punk rock band Beton in March, not long after the Russian invasion. They had just released Kiev Calling, a cover of the classic London Calling by The Clash. It went viral, with all proceeds going to the war effort. What message are you trying to send? Uh, message that we are struggling, we are stubborn. We stay strong, but we need help. That was then. This is now. What happened with the song after that? How far did it go? How successful was it? Uh, things happened so. Uh, I've started my old Ukrainian tour as a military doctor, as a military surgeon. So instead of going on a tour with the song, you basically have been touring as a military doctor. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I've been working during four months uh, on evacuation. 
With my ambulance car, I'm going closer to the front line uh, to take wounded persons who are in trenches. We are very close to front line, nearly seven kilometers or something like that. And Russian militaries are very happy when they can bomb uh, an ambulance car. It's a very big success to shoot an ambulance car. And uh, some, maybe three or four times, I was very close to be shot. But uh, thank to all the gods, thank to all the rock and roll gods and so on, uh, I'm still here and I can speak with you. Andre sent us this video of his work near the front lines. Here, he's removing a piece of shrapnel from a soldier's arm. In a way, he's now living the words of his song. We are not the band who pretends to be uh, those who resist. We do the resistance. Is this part of the resistance? Yes. I can say properly that music, you know, is it's something like a bridge from this unnormal world with rockets and tanks to a normal world with families, with concerts, with uh, bicycles, with skiing or something like that. So music, music is really, it's a very uh, helpful thing for all of us. Helpful because they know, they always knew the struggle and pain ahead. Are you guys, are you afraid? Sure we do. It's normal to be afraid. We are adult. We, we understand that uh, every day can be <laughs> the last one, all in all. That was then. This is now. A picture of Andre's bloodstained vest after a shift treating soldiers. War is goddamn bullshit. I, I cannot explain in other words. You know, it's blood, it's sweat, it's flies, it's uh, mud. It's the worst thing that ever can happen with the uh, human race. Hmm. Andre told us he didn't think he was going to be able to see his family, his wife, his children for Christmas, and he told us their faces the only ones he wants to see. So the January 6th committee dropping the first batch of hundreds of interview transcripts for this investigation. What we can expect in the final report, which is due out tomorrow. That's next. So tonight, the January 6th committee released 34 transcripts of witness testimony, including their questioning of witnesses Michael Flynn, John Eastman, Roger Stone, Alex Jones. The documents show that Michael Flynn took the fifth nearly every question asked by the committee. Then there was Roger Stone refusing to answer any questions in an interview that lasted a little bit under an hour. Jeffrey Clark stonewalled the committee in two contentious interviews, one of which he left early. Just hours from now, we will get the full report from the committee, the final report. It's a day late. We were expecting it today. Now we're told it will come tomorrow. With me now is former Assistant Special Watergate Prosecutor Nick Ackerman and CNN Senior Law Enforcement Analyst and former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, author of The Threat. Nick, let me start with you. The full report is coming out tomorrow. Delayed a day. 
It may be as simple as they wanted to wait till after Zelensky spoke to Congress to release the full report for probably maximum coverage. <laughs> right. What will you be looking for when we get these hundreds and hundreds of pages of writing? Well, I think what I'm going to be looking for is to see if there's anything different than what was in that summary that they just released the other day. I mean, that was pretty comprehensive. So it's hard to believe that there are going to be any bombshells in the full report. But clearly, one of the things I'm going to be looking for and I looked for in the summary was whether or not they filled in that gap between the White House and the actual insurrection that was perpetrated by the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers uh, on January 6th. Is there going to be anything in there about Roger Stone? Is there going to be anything in there about Michael Flynn? Is there going to be a connection to the war room at the Willard Hotel and all of the no-goodniks that were hanging out there, all of whom had one common denominator? They all had either been pardoned by Donald Trump or had asked for pardons by Donald Trump. So that, to me, is the real key. If you could show that somehow the White House, Donald Trump, was orchestrating what was going on through Roger Stone and General Flynn, uh, that would open up a whole new area of evidence. I don't think they have it, or it would have been in that summary. Uh, Andrew McCabe, we do understand that the committee has already started transmitting some of their information to the Department of Justice investigators. Tomorrow, all three of us, you know, half of the journalistic community will be pouring over the full report. My question to you, Andy, is will investigators, the federal investigators doing the report, will they be going through the report as carefully? Or at this point, do they already know everything that's in it? They will absolutely be going over it very carefully. Listen, to, listen, John, even if, let's say you're the investigator on the team that's focused on, uh, you know, the, um, um, let's say you're focused on the piece of Trump's kind of continuing to put out the big lie after his advisors had told him that absolutely he lost without any question. Uh, even if you know who all the uh, interviews were, uh, who was interviewed by the committee, even if you have a general idea what all those people said, you are still going to p- parse through this report and the underlying documents, the transcripts, the things that support the conclusions in the report, just to see if the folks that you're talking to, the folks that you've interviewed already, the folks that you would like to interview in the future may have said something that you're not aware of. It's a both a fascinating uh, opportunity for the attorneys and the investigators to get an inside line on what these witnesses might be thinking and might have said. And it's also a possible real problem for them if they've already taken statements from these people, they already have them on the record. Now they're going to be looking to see if they said anything contradictory to anyone else on the committee in the past. So they're going to be very focused on all this material. And Nick, one of the things we saw from the transcripts that were released tonight is the fifth, like people right. you know, using their Fifth Amendment rights a lot. One of my questions is, when you take the fifth, why do you take it on simple questions like, how old are you? Or, or what's your address? The, the, so many times in these transcripts, we see different people saying, on the advice of my lawyer, you know, I assert my constitutional rights. Oh, I think it's just that they're doing it because their lawyer is telling them to take the fifth straight throughout. Um, if you went to a judge and said, this guy's claiming the Fifth Amendment right because he's not going to tell us how old he is, that, that's not going to work. Um, but I think as a general matter, uh, these people are just refusing to answer any questions based on the fact that a truthful answer would tend to incriminate them. That's what it's all about. And they don't want to incriminate themselves. Uh, and the committee, if they had wanted 
could have provided immunity. They have the power to grant immunity uh, to witnesses, um, but they didn't do it with anybody. Now, this was contrary to what the Senate Select Committee did during the Watergate investigation. It seemed like half the witnesses, including John Dean, who we all know, um, was granted immunity. Um, but the problem now is the law has changed on yeah. that because of Iran-Contra and Ali North and the case that was brought against him. So I think that the committee was being very, very careful about not undermining any kind of DOJ investigation. And I think they've been pretty much, if, if you read the summary, you get the impression that they have been feeding information to DOJ and the DA's office in Fulton County just as things have been going along. So there's not going to be a lot of surprises there. We'll see. Well, I'm dying to see what happens over the next few weeks and months with the DOJ investigation, with the information that came from the January 6th committee. We'll be fascinated. Nick Ackerman, Andrew McCabe, thank you both so much for being with us. So millions of Americans facing a deep freeze as a bomb cyclone moves across the country. The temperature in Denver dropped from a spring-like, dropped from spring-like to frigid in just a couple hours. We're going to go there next. whole lot of people's holiday travel plans under threat by a powerful storm that's brewing into a so-called bomb cyclone, and it could be in full force by the end of the week. More than 100 million people across 37 states now under winter weather and wind chill alerts. Parts of the plains, upper and central Midwest, are bearing the brunt of the severe conditions tonight as heavy snow, life-threatening wind, chills, and ice cover the area. It's also hitting places, including Denver, that's seeing the most drastic temperature drop in decades. That's where our Lucy Kavanaugh, uh, who was like in balmy conditions a few hours ago, now braving these frigid conditions, uh, taught you was like, what, a 52 before, and now it's zero, as in zero? Where is it headed? Uh, nowhere good, John. Uh, and this is the joy and the glamour of TV news. We will be here on the streets to experience these unprecedented temperatures so that folks at home hopefully don't have to. Now, Denver actually saw a massive temperature drop, uh, 24 degrees in just seven minutes earlier today. The National Weather Service describing this as a life-threatening cold front that is uh, a once-in-a-generation storm. It is expected to bring temperatures even lower, as cold as minus 10 to minus 15 degrees here in Denver by tomorrow morning. This is going to be the coldest day Denver's experienced in 32 years. And of course, it's going to feel a lot colder with the gusty winds, the snow, the wind chill, uh, potentially going down to negative 25 or lower. In some parts of the plains, John, we could experience 60 degrees below zero in terms of wind chill. And this is no joke. Frostbite and those kinds of conditions could uh, happen to expose skin in as little as five minutes. Now, uh, close to a thousand Flights have been canceled nationwide with Chicago O'Hare Airport leading the way. But here in Denver, uh, that airport coming in second and also Denver's airport seeing a 37 degree temperature drop in just an hour, John. A lot of flights canceled. I have friends that are not able to get home for Christmas as a result of this. Uh, Obviously, a lot of people affected across the nation. Colorado's governor activating the National Guard to help with the, the extreme cold weather 
uh, preparations and also shelters such as the Denver Coliseum being converted to a 24-hour warming center in order for folks to have a safe place to get warm, John. Lucy Kavanaugh, you're a trooper. There's nothing like cold weather live shots because people can't see the rain or the snow. That's not what's happening. You just look cold, right? It's just all about how uncomfortable you are, which has got to be brutal. You're doing a great job, Lucy. Thank you very much. Stay warm. All right, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky going before the U.S. Congress and declaring that Ukraine is alive and kicking more on his historic visit to the capital in a moment. Plus, a programming note to tell you about. Dionne Warwick is a music icon with 56 worldwide hits, six Grammy Awards, one extraordinary legacy. She brings her exclusive story to CNN in the new film, Don't Make Me Over, premiering New Year's Day at 9 p.m. Dionne Warwick, one of the great female singers of all time. Dionne was the first African-American woman to win a Grammy in the pop category. The music I was singing was nothing like anything any of them were singing. The legacy of my family, music, pure and simple, music. Dionne Warwick, Don't Make Me Over, premieres New Year's Day at 9 on CNN. Tonight, history, a moment that will be the basis of comparisons for generations. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressing Congress, the U.S. Congress, in person and thanking the American people for standing with his country against Russia's brutal aggression and making the case for continued support. Our two nations are allies in this battle. And next year will be a turning point I know it, the point when Ukrainian courage and American resolve must guarantee the future of our common freedom, the freedom of people who stand for their values. Your support is crucial, not just to stand in such fight, but to get to the turning point to win on the battlefield. We have artillery. Yes. Thank you. We have it. Is it enough? Honestly, not really. (laughs) So tonight, as we see on the right, there was Zelensky surrounded by U.S. lawmakers. Yesterday, just yesterday, on the left, he was surrounded by Ukrainian troops on the front lines in Bakhmut, which he talked about extensively tonight. He is now on his way back to Ukraine. I want to bring in... CNN military analyst, retired Colonel Cedric Layton, and counterterrorism analyst Phil Mudd. It's interesting, Phil, I say counterterrorism analyst. Vladimir Zelensky called Russia terrorists, basically called Putin a terrorist tonight. If you're Vladimir Putin, how do you see this moment? Boy, there's a simple perspective, which is that there's a there's an alliance that is the Western alliance, the Americans and the Europeans that are arrayed against a weakened Russia. I think there's a separate story there here, though, John. And that is one of the reasons that I think Zelensky came to Washington. And that is if you're Putin, you're looking at going into 2023. Is there any sign of weakness from the West? Why would Zelensky show up in the United States? The Republican leader of the Congress 
talks about there's no blank check for Ukraine. There are reports out of uh, journalistic reports out of the UK saying the UK has to tell Biden, you've got to buck up here. There are reports out of the White House and questions about how committed Biden is to the camp- this campaign. I think at one level, Putin's got to look at this and, and, and think about the unity among the West. At another level, level, he might say the reason Zelensky had to go is that there's weakness in the West and there's uncertainty about the, whether the Americans are committed to this, John. Hmm. An interesting perspective, sort of a glass half full, glass half empty, depending how you yes. look at it. Colonel, you're standing at the map, the map of Ukraine, which where the troops have been and where the fighting has been has changed some over the last 10 months. Give us a perspective on the battlefield as it stands now. Sure, John. Well, good evening. This is one of the key elements here that really makes a difference because all of these areas right here at one point in time were actually occupied by Russian troops. But now what we're seeing is the Russian troops are only active in these areas right here that I've circled on the big map of Ukraine. But let's go into some detail here and take a look at what's going on in the eastern part, first of all. The town of Bakhmut, this town right here, is the one where there's a big battle that is going on right now. It's been raging really for, for several months now. Uh, this is kind of where the, uh, the Russians are putting a lot of their military might into this area. It is not as strategically important as, say, the towns of Sloviansk, uh, Kramatorsk, and Izyomar. The Ukrainians have retaken this area right here, uh, but... The Russians are putting up a big fight here, but the Ukrainians are holding their own in this particular area. Now let's move to the Kharkiv region, the northeast part of the area uh, of the country. Uh, Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine. All of this area used to be controlled by the Russians. The Ukrainians have taken this over. Now they're kind of stopped at this line right here, but uh, they still have the momentum to move a bit forward if they choose to do so and if they have the right kind of weaponry to do that. And then finally, down in the Kherson area, this is in the southern part of the country. Kherson was a city that was just liberated by uh, the Ukrainians. Uh, the Russians are on the other side of the Dnipro River, on uh, the east bank of this river. They still control all this area. They still have this land bridge that connects Russia with Crimea, and the Russians want to keep this. But what the, uh, the Ukrainians are going to do is they're going to try to potentially come in down through here and go to areas like Melitopol, which is one of the areas that could be actually one of the big areas that, uh, that they could potentially take over down here. But the one key thing to watch out for is what's happening up here in Belarus. Putin has been to Belarus and uh, visited with the President Lukashenko of Belarus. Uh, there may be something brewing here where there's an alliance or something more that's going on that's even further baked into uh, the Russian war strategy. But that's exactly how this particular area is playing out. This static line right here may very well change once things freeze up. Phil Mudd, you talked some about the international will to support Ukraine and whether or not that might be wavering or strengthening with Zelensky here in the United States tonight. What about the will to fight inside Russia? How much does Vladimir Putin have to worry about his own people? And from an intelligence perspective, how can the U.S. assess how much backing Putin still has? Boy, if you wanted to ask the toughest question in the book, that's the question. When we went into this war, John, you would have assessed this as a capabilities question. When you think about intelligence, there's two pieces typically, capabilities and intent. Capabilities meaning how many divisions do the Russians have, how many airplanes, how many infantry. And you would have said, as I said back then, I thought the Russians would roll the Ukrainians after a while. 
What we've learned over the past just less than a year is this is not just a capabilities question. This is a will question. And in the question of will, the Ukrainians have beaten the Russians time and time again. I think going into 2023, if you go into the spring of this year and the Russians don't make major or significant gains or at least hold their gains going into 2020, the spring of 2023, if the Ukrainians keep making gains, boy, I've got to relook as a lot of us do what we were saying a year ago and say and, and asking whether the Ukrainians might actually win this one. I can't believe that, but it is a game of will, not just capability, John. And Cedric Layton, to you, one of the major discussion points of this entire trip, the Patriot missile, the Patriot missile battery the U.S. has promised to provide to Ukraine. Talk to us about what that can do, how that can, if it can, change things, and also how easy or hard it will be for the Ukrainians actually to operate this. So the Ukrainians, John, are going to need a bit of training to actually operate this system. It is a fairly complex system, and what it basically does is it takes the upper part of uh, the air defense structure, in other words, the higher altitude targets, and it can go from medium to high altitude very well. Its main target, ballistic missiles. This is what the system is designed to go against. It takes about six months to train the average operator on this for the U.S. Army. The Ukrainians might be able to do it a little bit quicker if they have the right skill set and if they have people with a bit of experience in here. But it is a complementary system. It is not a panacea. Colonel Cedric Layton, Phil Mudd, thanks to both of you. So great to see both of you. Have a wonderful holiday if I don't see you again. You too, John. All right. I want to bring in the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Stephen Pfeiffer. Uh, ambassador, thank you so much for being with us. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, what do you think he wanted to get tonight? And did he get it? Yeah, I believe that uh, President Zelensky wanted to do three things. One, to express gratitude, not just to President Biden, but also to the American Congress and more broadly in that speech we saw to the American people. Second, uh, he wanted to make clear that this fight is not just about Ukraine. It's about bigger things. It's about a rule-based international order. The West has a lot, of, a lot at stake in this fight and how it turns out. And I think the third message, and it shouldn't be a surprise, you know, what Ukraine has survived on the last 10 months is the tenacity, skill, and courage of the Ukrainian military personnel, but they've been helped by a lot of tools provided by the West. And so his message both to Congress, but I'm sure also to President Biden in their private discussion was they need, they want more weapons so that they can continue the gains they've recorded over the last three months and continue to push the Russian military back. You know, it's interesting. He made the case this isn't just a Ukrainian issue. It's a global issue. This isn't just a momentary problem. It's a generational problem. Let's listen to a little bit of what he said on that point. This guy has in his his very soul is who he says he is. It's clear who he is. He's willing to give his life for his country and all the folks that came with him today. And so I think it's uh, he... The longer the war lasts, the longer this aggression lasts, there will be more parents who live for the sake of vengeance or revenge. So more parents who will live for the sake of vengeance or revenge. This could last, he's saying. Why is that important? Well, I think the message he's trying to say is that the longer this goes on, uh, the harder it could be. And what he would like would be, I think, American support and support from other Western countries 
so that Ukraine can build on the successes they've had in September in taking back all of Kharkiv region, and then in November in taking back the western part of Kherson region, continue that military success, because that's the kind of things that's going to force the Kremlin to reconsider its course and perhaps get serious about a negotiation. Let's talk about negotiation, because Zelensky, in his speech, he did have words about a possible peace conference, that he's willing to talk about this. But it felt or it felt like it came with a, a big qualifier. It would have to be under certain terms. What would be the terms, do you think, that Zelensky would be willing to discuss or negotiate? Yeah. Well, he's been very clear. He wants all of Ukraine's territory back, including the peninsula of Crimea. He wants reparations to repair the hundreds of billions of dollars of damage that this Russian military operation has done to Ukraine. And he wants Russians held accountable for the war crimes and atrocities that have been committed. Uh, I'm not sure at the end of the day he can get all of that, which is why I don't believe the West and I don't think the Biden administration is pushing him towards a negotiation. That's going to be a decision that he has to make, because if there is a serious negotiation, first of all, there has to be some sign from Moscow, which we haven't seen in 10 months, that they're prepared to negotiate in a serious way. But then for Zelensky, he has to be prepared to make some perhaps politically delicate decisions if there are some areas that he needs to compromise on. Yeah, and that's what's so, so that's hard. Be a decision for it's so hard to imagine in some ways because of how much the Ukrainian people have suffered, how much they've been through. He's got an internal domestic issue here, which is that there aren't any Ukrainians who want him to give anything up right now. No, this is exactly right. I mean, if you go back to early March, the Ukrainians were making offers to accept neutrality and accept some other things that really went a ways towards the Russian position, and the Russians ignored it. What's happened since March is the Ukrainians have seen what happened in towns like Bucha and Irpin and Bodoryanka, where they saw the torture chambers, mass graves, they heard the stories of summary executions, really grotesque things like Ukrainian children being taken back to Russia for adoption by Russian parents. They saw the three-month assault by the Russian military on Mariupol, which leveled a good part of the city. And so the attitude of Ukrainians and also the attitudes of President Zelensky himself, I believe, have hardened. There was a poll in uh, October, and it said 86% of Ukrainians want to keep fighting, and they oppose negotiations. So there's real limits. Even if President Zelensky wanted to get into a negotiation, there's some real limits on how far he could go. So what changes things? Uh, what changes things? Well, again, I would hope that the Ukrainian military can continue the military success. Ideally, they could drive the Russians out or back to the line on February 23. But if they can't do that, at least begin to shake the Kremlin up to get to the Kremlin to a point where it begins to search for a way out of this blunder. And it really is a blunder by Putin. Russia will emerge from this diminished politically, economically, militarily. Uh, but when did we reach that point? It could take months. It could be a long fight. Uh, I we need to help the Ukrainians. Win that, I got to let you go sooner. here. I got to let you go, Ambassador. But quickly, does Vladimir Putin, does it cause him fear? Does he worry when he sees Zelensky standing before the U.S. Congress? I think Vladimir Putin, when he looks at the film of this, he's going to see President Biden fully backing President Zelensky and a lot of American congressional support. And again, what Putin has been hoping to do is undermine Western support for Ukraine. 
what this visit did was solidify that support between the United States and Ukraine. Ambassador, great to have you on tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. President Zelensky did receive a warm, rousing, bipartisan reception in Congress tonight, telling lawmakers that USA to Ukraine is an investment in global security and democracy. But will Republicans pull back on that investment when they take control of the House in a few weeks? We'll talk about that next. Tonight, we saw a rare moment of unity on Capitol Hill, standing ovations for the leader of Ukraine as he told Congress that his country has beaten the odds against Russia and appealed for continued help to win the war. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. You can speed up our victory. Congress is expected to vote this week on a spending package that includes an additional $45 billion in emergency aid to Ukraine. But what's most uncertain is future assistance with Republicans about to take over control of the House. Kevin McCarthy, who is vying to be speaker, said again tonight that he will never support a blank check for Ukraine. However, no one's actually asked for a blank check for Ukraine. Here now, CNN Political commentator Scott Jennings, former special assistant to President George W. Bush, Nayara Haq, a former White House senior director of cabinet affairs, and Bob Cusack, editor-in-chief of The Hill. And Bob, let me just start with you quickly. The Washington that Zelensky arrived in today in terms of support for Ukraine, what was that in the Washington he left tonight in terms of support for Ukraine? Did it change? John, I think it did. I mean, I think it was a very impressive speech. I think uh, House Republicans in particular have to be concerned because they are not unified on Ukraine. Now, a lot of House Republicans do support Ukraine, but there's a big difference between what Mitch McConnell is saying in the Senate on Ukraine. He's a big backer of Ukraine aid and and what you said, Kevin McCarthy. Of course, Kevin McCarthy's got a first focus uh, on on being speaker. But at the same time, their message is very different than Democrats. Their message is no blank check. And the message from the president, as well as the Treasury secretary, is we're going to do this as long as it takes because the stakes are so high. So I think uh, Ukraine aid in the new year, uh, their stock is up. Stock is up. Scott Jennings, uh, Bob was just talking about some in the House who aren't as supportive of aid to Ukraine as maybe Republicans in the Senate. Matt Gates, who did go to his credit, did go to the speech tonight. He wrote this. He goes, um, He went to the speech out of respect, not agreement. And when asked if there's anything in the speech that he found compelling or that he agreed with, he said, I love the fashion choices. So uh, what do you make of where certain House members are on this, Scott? Yeah, well, certain House members are about the least serious people that you could possibly consult on weighty topics. That's one of them. And so that's what I think about him. I think a distinct minority of Republicans have decided that supporting Vladimir Putin is a good way to own the libs. That's a minority of the party. The majority of the party understands that it's not a great idea to let a murderous dictator run wild through Europe. And so they've decided to support our Ukrainian allies. And think about the amazing deal the American people are getting here. We are fighting the Russians. We are defeating the Russians. And not a single American soldier is in harm's way. 
We are helping people who want to fight the Russians. This is this is a good deal for the American people. I do think that's the majority position of the Republican Party. I do think accountability and transparency is vital. That's why McCarthy says he doesn't want a blank check. There is going to have to be some, you know, look, see under the hood here. Where's all this money gone? Has any of it been wasted, et cetera, et cetera? That's perfectly fine. But the issue here is not letting Putin get away with this. The Ukrainians are on the verge of winning. And it's largely because of us, not anybody else, but because of us. And we got to keep it that way. Nayara, how central do you feel that this White House wants to put Ukraine in terms of having it be on the political agenda starting in January? Well, Biden addressed the issue of democracy in his closing remarks to the midterm election. He made America's democracy a political issue, democracy on the world stage a political issue. And effectively, if you defend democracy overseas, this is what it looks like without putting any U.S. troops in harm's way. The challenge we're seeing is that the same people in Congress who did not want to investigate the attack on our capital also suddenly now want to investigate spending money for Ukraine. To be clear, John, the Congress, before any money gets sent out, Congress gets 15 days notice from the Pentagon on exactly where that money is going and what it's going for. So the accountability is there. Anybody can Google it on House Appropriations Committee. You just have to be willing to read and be transparent about what you're understanding about this war. It is ultimately the existential crisis of the moment. What does it look like for the United States to stand up for democracy on the world stage? You know, Bob, Cynthia Lomas, the, the senator from Wyoming, Republican senator from Wyoming, said something interesting after the speech. She said it was wise for Zelensky to thank American families. What do you think of that message, Bob? Oh, I, I think he knows politics very well. And I, I think Zelensky's going to be smart. He knows that, that House Republicans uh, are going to be controlling that chamber next year. And, and I imagine he, he and his people are going to be in contact with him. Uh, in 2023. And I, I do think it was very smart, his speech, just saying, hey, this is not charity. This is an investment thanking American families. It's not like we're sending trillions of dollars. Yes, we do have a spending problem. Medicare and Social Security need to be shored up financially. But at the same time, you have to think of history. And 10 years from now, uh, I, I think I think this investment is going to be a good one. And most members of Congress do think that. Uh, Scott, what did you make of the theater of tonight. And I'm not using that term at all pejoratively because I think it can be very effective. And I think Zelensky made it very effective walking into the chamber in his fatigues, speaking in English to the Congress, talking about Christmas, how Ukrainians will spend Christmas in a way that had to make those members of Congress think about how they will be spending Christmas in just a few moments. I think the theater was important tonight because it was a reminder that this is not some faraway problem that if we choose to ignore it, uh, it'll just, you know, do whatever happens. And then there's no impact on the United States coming to the Congress, coming from the battlefield, essentially to the Congress to say thank you for this aid and, and for all of your support. It was a reminder that what happens there absolutely affects what happens here and what happens to Western civilization, what happens to democracy all over the world. So I think the theater of that was was really, really important. And again, thanking the American people for their generosity, I think was great, but also reminding uh, the Congress that, mm -hmm. you know, this war is there to be won, but it's not won yet. It's not going to be won in the next couple of weeks, but it is there to be won if you stick with us. To me, the theater of tonight mm -hmm. drove home all of those messages. And I thought that was really 
really well played. Yeah, and again, I'm not using that term at all pejoratively in IRA because I think it's extraordinary yeah. that yesterday, just yesterday, he was in Bakhmut, which is a city under siege right now where people are dying every day. He was with the troops on the front line, the heroes, as he called them. That was yesterday. And we can see the picture on the left of the screen. And tonight he was surrounded by the U.S. Congress. It's just it is it's hard to get past that moment in history that we just saw in era. I ran into the Ukrainian ambassador at a holiday event last night, and I was rather shocked uh, because I, I asked her how she was doing, and she said, I'm fighting. I'm fighting every day, and there's more that you can do. This, this is a consistent message. The Ukrainians deeply understand what it means to be connected not only to the U.S. government, but to the American people. This is their livelihoods, right? They, they have been under threat of Russian attacks for at least 15 years, and now they have a full-scale invasion, the likes of which we have not seen since World War II. So they're going to tie it to history. They're going to tie it to American responsibility. Certainly the fact that millions of Ukrainian children and families are without energy, without heating in Christmas season, all of that works for connecting our countries together in that fight for democracy. Naira, Scott, Bob, thank you all for being here tonight. Really appreciate it. So the release of former President Trump's taxes already showing that he was not properly audited by the IRS, even though it was mandatory. And even though Trump falsely claimed that he was constantly under audit, what more are we learning or do we need to learn? That's next. Former President Trump bucked years of precedent by failing to reveal his tax returns as both a candidate and while in office. But now the report from the House Ways and Means Committee is giving us new insight into Trump's financial dealings. And while it's going to take time for lawmakers and the public to digest the flood of information about Trump's taxes, one of my next guests says she's got two big questions about it. I'm talking about CNN economics and political commentator Catherine Rampell, who joins me along with Legal analyst Norm Eisen. Catherine, you say the big questions are, number one, how much did Trump cheat Uncle Sam if he cheated? And number two, why exactly did the Internal Revenue Service drop the ball on monitoring or detecting, number one? And just to remind people, one of the things that's been revealed in this congressional report is the IRS didn't do the mandatory audit they were supposed to do on Trump's first two years in office. Yes. So the answer to question number one is there were a lot of red flags about financial shenanigans that the president, the former president, uh, was involved in, including dodgy charitable deductions. Was he um, giving gifts to his children that were disguised as loans? Were there personal expenses that he was pretending were business expenses? All sorts of stuff like that. Um, there were tons of red flags even before he took office. The IRS also has a policy in its manual, and and this policy has been in its manual for decades, that every year the president and the vice president get audited. So the question, whether or not they have red flags, by the way. So the question is, why didn't they audit him for the first two years that he was in office? And in fact, it looks like, according to this Ways and Means report, they didn't even begin an audit until uh, House Democrats asked them about the audits that they presumed were already going on. They were like, hmm, maybe we should notify the Trumps that we're going to audit them now. Uh, so it's just, it's very bizarre. Um, and it's hard to know what's going on here. I mean, obviously, the IRS is under-resourced. I've written about that a bajillion times. I don't think that's an excuse for for not doing their, their due diligence here. Um, but were they intimidated? Were they bullied? Were they disorganized? Were they scared of their shadow? We don't know yet. Norm, they didn't do something that the law says they have to do. What questions do you have about it? Well, to the questions about 
whether his income was accurate, whether his deductions were accurate, and why the IRS uh, didn't do what they were required to do. The third question that I have, John, is what do these returns tell us about the larger pattern of alleged frauds that we know has been under investigation, including by New York authorities for years. I've written about them at the Brookings Institution. Questions like the deductions that Donald Trump took for uh, his um, uh, properties, uh, claiming conservation easements, were those merited? There's a lingering question about his large business losses that he's carried forward whether those were actually for real, the size of taxable deductions. So I think once we get the actual returns, investigators, particularly in New York State, where the AG Tish James is going to go to trial on allegations of fraud, where the Manhattan DA has already um, secured uh, a conviction on 17 counts of the Trump Organization for Tax Fraud, and where he is said to be reopening his investigation. We're really at the beginning of understanding the meaning of these financial figures. You know, Catherine, it's interesting. The House Ways and Means Committee, since it's been led by Democrats, has always said they had a legislative purpose. They had to say that in order to get the tax returns. Well, it turns out now that we learn that the mandatory audit didn't take place, that actually really does indicate a real legislative purpose. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I thought that the legal justification that they were using to get Trump's tax returns was not the most compelling one. I thought that there were a lot of Mm -hmm. other reasons why we cared about getting those documents, because, again, historically, presidents and major party presidential candidates uh, voluntarily released them. Yeah, that's a political argument, maybe a moral argument, but not necessarily a legislative or legal one. And and I think it's important to know where is he getting his money from? Whom does he owe money to? uh, You know, what kinds of financial entanglements does he have that might influence how he sets policy? All of that stuff is important in in addition to all of the alleged possible fraud that Norm just talked about. Um, How is he wielding his power and where does he, how might he be influenced by his business empire? All of that stuff, very compelling to me. This question about the presidential, the mandatory presidential audit system. I was like, eh, whatever. But then it turns out, actually, it doesn't seem to be functioning as it's supposed to be functioning. And again, we don't know why. We don't know if there was some sort of intervention from on high or if this was just incompetence or if people were just, you know, very nervous about crossing Trump. I don't know. If you look at the report itself, there was multiple reports that were released. But if you look at some of the documentation that was released this week, it does suggest that IRS employees were unusually deferential to Trump's uh, tax counsel on a number of issues, and that Trump's tax Mm -hmm. counsel was very uncooperative in providing information on a number of issues. So we don't know what went on here, but something didn't function right. So, Norm, what happens now with with Democrats losing control of the House Ways and Means Committee in weeks? Well, uh, John, that's part of the legitimate legislative purpose here. You know, when you issue a report like the one Catherine just referenced, it's customary to back that up with the data. The tax returns are the data that the American people need to see to understand these failures, but they're also available to the United States Senate now. So uh, we've already heard from Senator Blumenthal and others that uh, something doesn't quite smell right Uh, over at the IRS presidential audit system. And so I think the Senate will take it up. And of course, 
state uh, investigators, and um, we're counting on the press and the American people to scrutinize these materials very closely. It's complicated stuff, which also might be part of the reason that the IRS, I know it sounds strange, the IRS didn't have the right people to go through taxes, but it's pretty complicated. It is extremely complicated. And look, you will not find another journalist who has been on the record more frequently than I have, I think, Mm -hmm. advocating for giving more resources to the IRS precisely so that they can engage in these enforcement activities when they're so outgunned by, you know, big wealthy individuals or complicated corporate um, tax audits that they would like to, to, you know, take on that they can't. So I do think they need more resources. I think this is a difficult task. That said, I still think they really dropped the ball here. This should have been a priority for a whole bunch of policy-related reasons, among others. We need to know that the president of the United States is not above the law. Look, and we need to know why they dropped the ball, and that's going to be something big going forward. Catherine Rempel, great to see you. Thank you very much. Norm Eisen, our thanks to you as well. So it is called a bomb cyclone, and it's threatening to bring frigid temperatures and upend holiday travel for millions of Americans. Who will see the brunt of it? That's next. An intensifying storm set to impact nearly every U.S. state as we enter the busiest travel days of the year. More than 100 million people now under winter weather and wind chill alerts. The National Weather Service is calling the developing bomb cyclone a once-in-a-generation storm. Several states, including Kentucky, Oklahoma, Maryland, and Georgia, have preemptively declared a state of emergency. CDM meteorologist Britley Ritz has the latest from the CNN Weather Center. Britley, walk us through what we're seeing now and how bad things could get. Well, I want to show you this and pay close attention to the blues and the purples. That's where the fronts already move through. And mind you, this is a 24-hour temperature change. So yesterday at this time, we were significantly warmer, pinpointing Casper 51 degrees cooler now than we were yesterday at this time. Watch this. Record temperature drop in Cheyenne from 43 degrees to 10 degrees within just 10 minutes as that front moved through. So that's a 43-degree temperature drop within just 10 minutes time. Denver did the same thing. 42 degrees to 18 degrees within seven minutes. That's a 24 degree temperature drop within just 10 minutes time. 70 below. That's what it feels like. So the temperature is okay. But here's the deal. When you factor in the wind, this is what matters. This is what it feels like. Denver temperatures are going to be 11 below in the morning. And then finally, slowly trying to wake our way back up into next week. Jackson, Mississippi, 84 hours below freezing. You can expect this in Birmingham, Alabama, as well as Houston, Texas. 80 hours in Birmingham, by the way, below freezing in Houston, 45, if not more. I want you to pay attention. I mentioned the, the wind chill. 35 below to 45 below. Now we're talking about exposure time and getting frostbite. It only takes 5 to 10 minutes at that point. So gloves, hats, scarves, if you have to go out, I would suggest staying indoors. As for your wind chill forecast, Minneapolis, we're dropping down to 32 below on on Friday, 33 below in Chicago. Folks, it's not getting any better over the next few days. It's just beginning. So if you can, stay indoors. Wind speeds, when you factor that in with the actual temperature, you get what's called the wind chill. 74 mile per hour wind speeds in Rollins, Wyoming. That is a category one storm force wind when it comes down to hurricanes. Just a comparison there. Many under some sort of wind chill alert. Wind chill warnings from Billings, Montana to Omaha, all the way down into the Tennessee River Valley. 
Also, dealing with blizzard warnings for parts of the country from the plains all across the Great Lakes. Snowfall expected here within the next 24 hours. Oi, that's all I can yeah. say to this. That <laughs> is <lot>. some <laughs> bleak forecast there. Brittley, thank you very much. No problem. I want to turn now to one of the coldest places in the country. Billings, Montana is set to hit an overnight low of minus 29 degrees, minus 50 with the wind chill. Joining me now is Billings Mayor Bill Cole. Did I read that right? Minus 29? Uh, That's pretty cold. How do you prepare for something like that? Well, you you got it right. Uh, John's about 20 below out there now, looking at 29 below tomorrow, about 50 below windshield. Plus, we've had some uh, snow, so the roads are, are slippery and dangerous out there. Um, How do we prepare? Well, winter is nothing new to Montana. I really feel bad for Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, other places that are facing this. Our problems are uh, being uh, seen all over the country. Uh, We have the advantage of some experience. Of course, our greatest concern are our homeless population. Mm. And so, uh, uh, as you heard, you've only got about five to 10 minutes when it's uh, those kind of temperatures before you're looking at the risk of frostbite. Uh, Tonight is the winter solstice, the longest night of the year, 14 hours of darkness. Uh, Fortunately, we have uh, day centers uh, for the homeless. We also have two uh, uh, overnight shelters, one of which we just opened tonight. Uh, we've got a great team of churches, nonprofit organizations, uh, volunteers, our rescue mission, our continuum of care that are working hard on this to take care of our homeless. But that's the homeless side of it. Well, then we, of course, have a lot of problems when it comes to uh, uh, city equipment and uh, our personnel. Yeah, I was going to ask about that just in terms of infrastructure. You know, what tends to go when temperatures get, you know, 50 below with wind chill? Well, pretty much everything <laughs> tends to go. But uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, equipment, of course, is run by diesel. Diesel clogs at low temperatures. And so equipment doesn't start. start uh, equipment that does start uh, breaks. Uh, parts break. Uh, hydraulic hoses break. Um, uh, everything has to be hauled back and, and worked on pipes break. We're now seeing frost levels at about three feet. A lot of our water mains are not that much uh, below that. So we're starting to see broken pipes. And of course, what happens when pipes break, they need to be fixed. And so um, uh, a lot of people don't appreciate when they're having uh, Christmas dinner or Christmas Eve with their family and the water works, that that's because utility workers and city employees uh, we're in a deep, dark trench in 25 degrees below fixing those broken pipes. And that's the story all over the United States. And we owe a great debt of uh, gratitude. One way we prepare is with extra parts. And most importantly, uh, just a very experienced uh, crews and staff who are, uh, who've seen this before and know what to expect. You know, you know, it's cold when even a hardy Montanan basically says, yeah. Yeah, this is really bad. This time is just beginning. Winter's just beginning. Can you stand three more months of this? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, of course, it has an economic impact. We're seeing some some travel uh, impacts. Our uh, local ski area, Red Lodge Mountain, was closed today because of the frigid temperatures. I assume it'll be closed uh, tomorrow. This is a bit unusual. Uh, Usually winter, uh, remember, I'm the mayor, it's about 74 degrees all year Mm -hmm. long and sunny. But this is a bit of an exception. (laughs) That's right. 
you know, and, and uh, we've had a lot of great uh, uh, publicity. Uh, 3.9 people moved into Billings in 2021. So one thing I'm curious about is whether this is going to have an impact on that migration rate. I'm right. thinking that some people may think that, uh, you know, California might not have been so bad after all, <laughs> after they looked at 50 degree uh, windshields for uh, windshield for a while. That's right, Mayor. I was part of your campaign promise, 74 degrees every day. Thank you so much for being with us. Stay warm, stay safe. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. All right. We'll be right back. In just hours, we are expecting the release of the final report from the January 6th committee. The highly anticipated eight-chapter document will detail the panel's investigation and comes just days after the committee referred the former president to DOJ on four criminal charges. CNN will bring you that as soon as we get it. Before we go, though, you know the song, but not the story. Explore the case the music world couldn't shake off in taking on Taylor Swift, airing this Friday at 9 p.m. on CNN. When I first heard Shake It Off, when the hook started, how does a person feel when they come home and they feel like their house has been robbed? As soon as I heard the hook, I said, that's 3LW. 3LW had a steady fandom. We had to take action somehow. Songwriters Nathan Butler and Sean Hall sued Taylor Swift, claiming that Shake It Off borrowed from a song they wrote. The part of the song that everybody remembers. Play is they gotta play, and hate is they gotta hate. This situation is bigger than me. When you have a hit song, you're probably gonna get sued. It's sort of like trying to copyright what's up. Everyone in the music industry is sort of looking over their shoulder. Taylor's team has been arguing it's a money grab. When you respect other songwriters, you give credit. If we know anything about Taylor Swift, is that she does not shy away from a fight. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.